This is a Scrap Studio production and you're listening to Scraps by Electronic Medicines. And before we start, here is a short message from one of our listeners. I am Sharina Rice, a neuroscientist and cybernetician. I enjoy the Scraps podcast because Jojo and Arun highlight different perspectives on advances in science. They maintain investigative rigor, yet they neither present hype nor jargon. We invite you to check out the Psychedelics mini-series. It will expand your mind. Be sure to subscribe to and rate Scraps on your favorite podcast platform. We really love hearing from all of you. So if you have any specific feedback or messages similar to what Sharina just shared today, please send us an email at scrapspodcast at gmail.com or you can get in touch with Arun or Jojo on LinkedIn or on Twitter. Hey everybody, it's Jojo. And it's Arun here. Hope you had a chance to listen to episode one, where we proposed the first framework for all aspects of bioelectronic medicines. But Arun, before we start that, I want to let everyone know that scraps will always remain free, but the production of scraps is not. We would very much appreciate donations that will be used for the cost to bring these episodes to you. Please go to scrapspodcast.com slash donate to do this for something as little as a cup of coffee or a pint of beer. I know which one's my choice. We want to thank our sponsors, Cortec and Certec Medical, for the kind donations to enable us to bring these episodes to you. Cortec does a phenomenal job with their Brain Interchange One system, which is inductively powered and completely wireless system that enables experiments in conscious animals in their native environment. This is super important. So look up Cortec. And Certec Medical can help make your medical device a home run. They do everything from active implantables to minimally invasive therapeutics. Check out their full list of service offerings at certecmed.com. Then give them a call and tell them the Scraps team said hey. All right, Arun, what are we talking about today? Going back to the framework that we defined in episode one, today we are going to talk about a non-electrical approach to modulate brain function. This is a good time to stop and go listen to episode 1 if you haven't already done that. We are going to talk about the fourth vertical in the framework that we shared in that episode, specifically dealing with dart throwers who seek to employ non-electrical ways to modulate nerve function as target practice so that they can selectively target specific regions of the brain to treat chronic disorders. Specifically, we are going to talk about the use of magnetic stimulation to treat treatment-resistant depression. Well, Jojo, remember during the psychedelic series in episodes 7 and 8, where we covered PTSD and depression treatments with psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, and that there were really two big problems in psychiatry. How can I possibly forget that? Do you want to tell your listeners about it? I mean, technically, they should know this by heart, having listened to the entire series multiple times. But since we can't test them and grade their exams, we're going to let them cheat a little bit by giving them an answer. Kind of like what happens in a PhD candidacy exam. I mean, I'm just guessing on that one. That's funny. (laughs) Yeah, really, it's two things, right? First, these patients with mental health issues like anything that is remotely similar to PTSD, depression, or substance addiction, get put on antidepressants. Right, like SSRIs with that long list of side effects we had to suffer through. Can we pause for a second here and take stock? 
The antidepressant market is projected to be over $28 billion and is widely prescribed almost as the first choice medication. Yeah, we kind of heard this from Keith Abraham, the veteran that we interviewed in episode 7 of the psychedelic series, didn't we? Keith described how it numbed all of his emotions. On top of this, a typical antidepressant medication, or SSRI, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, like Paxil, have other side effects. It reads like a grocery list of untoward effects. Sleepiness, drowsiness, tired feeling, nervousness, insomnia, dizziness, nausea, skin rash, headache, diarrhea, constipation, upset stomach, stomach pain, dry mouth, changes in appetite, abnormal ejaculation, impotence, decreased sex drive, difficulty having an orgasm, dry mouth, and weight loss. (sighs) While I know that all sounds like fun, some of the more serious side effects of Zoloft include rigid muscles, high fever, sweating, confusion, fast or uneven heartbeat, feeling you might pass out, agitation, hallucinations, overactive reflexes, tremors, vomiting, feeling unsteady, loss of coordination, trouble concentrating, memory problems, weakness, fainting, seizure, shallow breathing, or breathing that stops. And we're not picking only on Zoloft. Paxil's side effects are no less horrifying. With Paxil, you can also add nasal irritation, yawning, and ringing in the ears. Oh, and please do call your doctor immediately if you're experiencing suicidal thoughts. None of this sounds like a solution. Secondly, most patients really don't have much options and get put on multiple antidepressants at the same time. Some being prescribed as many as four to six different medications or even more. Still, despite this, the condition of depression is not treated well and they may even end up with suicidal intentions from time to time. Oh, and we we also discussed in the psychedelic series that psychedelic compounds are not trialed in patients with bipolar disorders. So if someone has depression and a mood disorder, psychedelic trials won't probably be available to them, or at least not yet. Yes, that's true. And a decade or so ago, every major pharmaceutical company got out of neuroscience research. They literally quit and closed down every research unit focusing on mental health. Everything became a flavor of inflammation. Neuroinflammation, immune inflammation, immuno-oncology, inflammation this, inflammation that, etc., etc., etc. Yes, and this is because they felt that serotonin and the neurotransmitter theory of mental health has been worked on for a long time and making drugs without side effects, targeting these mechanisms was just downright impossible. Okay, so now you've slowly dragged me into a problem. If everything closed down, why are we talking about neuromodulation for mental health disorders? Are bioelectronic medicines really turning the tables here? Well, that's what we're here to talk about, isn't it? Rather than talk about the well-trodden path of movement disorders and Parkinson's that deep brain stimulation treats, and something that our listeners can Google and learn from Wikipedia, we're going to discuss how the tides are being turned in the area of mental health on all using some really exciting technology. Okay, so before we go further, I'm really curious about how the areas of psychiatry and psychology have evolved. I mean, you can almost make a connection between psychology and psychological profiles. It's all in your mind, sort of talk it out in a Freud way. Or if you look at all the commercials that we see on TV with antidepressants in between every three downs of football, 
you could almost take a guess and say that mental health was a neurochemical problem. And now we're saying it's more of an electrical problem. Yes, that's correct, Jojo. To explain further, I've called in Nolan Williams. Nolan is an assistant professor of psychiatry and neurosciences at Stanford University. Psychiatry and kind of uh, how the view is changing of psychiatry. And so and I've talked about this before and others have, have thought about this, this idea of psychiatry having three kind of eras, if you will, so far. This, and and the, the first one being Freud and, and psychoanalysis. And before that, you know, there were a lot of neuropsychiatrists, actually. People were classically trained as neuropsychiatrists, um, but there weren't really any treatments for those problems other than going to the asylum or whatever, right? And then, and then psychiatry 1.0 is psychoanalysis and this idea that you can affect those problems um, using, um, you know, words, using, using um, uh, therapy. And, uh, and that, that really split with the neuropsychiatry viewpoint that had been happening up until that point. And so Freud, um, you know, some people don't realize this, but Freud was actually a neurologist trained under, um, under Charcot and all of the, the, the greats of, of neurology and really split off from that, trans- that tradition to, to create psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. For anyone who's interested in knowing more about Dr. Charcot, and his influence on medicine. I must refer you to episode 7 of the Psychedelic series where we talk about some of his accomplishments and his role in developing a treatment for a completely different condition. In neurology, we know as PTSD. And then psychiatry kind of came under that umbrella of psychoanalysis. And really, you know, there's still, um, you know, still psychoanalysts to this day. Um, you know, there have been a number of studies where they've compared different psycho therapeutic uh, modalities and it really has more to do with how connected the person is to the therapist than anything else you know um, it's a, it's inc- you know whether you're not getting into the efficacy but just talking about efficiency it's a very inefficient process right um, one psychiatrist needed to see in, in classic psychoanalysis you see the patient every day for an hour so that was an hour of the patient's life that was so this, this was really only for the higher socioeconomic status folks and it was um it was really only a treatment for that they could be employed by psychiatrists for like 10 patients um, total. Right. So most psychiatrists had 10 patients. They worked 10 hours a day. They saw their 10 patients for an hour each or whatever, eight patients or whatever it was. And that was it. You know, that's and, and you know, the, the scale of the problem, you'd have to have, you know, uh, a, an order of magnitude or two orders of magnitude more psychiatrists for psychoanalysis to be something that everybody received and not, not to mention all the payer issues. And then, Psychopharmacology came about, you know, first as, as this, you know, we were talking about this earlier, kind of this, this whole idea of psychedelics, first as the whole psychedelic thing, and then, you know, transitioned into, into you know, non-psychedelic drugs, um, you know, for, for antidepressants, antipsychotics. And that was really heretical back then, right? This idea that somehow a pill was going to affect this thing that the analyst thought was really like a content problem. And, and that's really kind of the, the, the scenario with psychiatry, unfortunately, is the new era. There's a lot of reaction from the old eras about, you know, about what, uh, how, it, it, can this possibly be right kind of thing. But before we go there, should we give some basic foundations? I, for one, am a bit clueless. Yes, as always, let's first go back to high school physics. Everything goes back to high school, Arun. I hate that. But I do love how even the most complicated things have roots in our high school curriculum. (laughs) It's called basics, Jojo. Basics. 
Okay, okay. So what do you got? Well, we speak extensively of electricity. Electricity is basically the movement of electrons through a conductive wire, and Ohm's law governs this. Remember that? Voltage is current times resistance. Yes, and now there is another concept that we learned along with electricity. Remember those various thumb rules that existed? The right-hand thumb rule, the left-hand thumb rule, there was Faraday and there was Maxwell, and all these guys from the uh, 19th century who basically came up with all these theories that we had to learn? We're not going to bore you now, especially our listeners, with details on what each finger means. But for the sake of simplicity, if current is passed through a wound electric wire, it generates... Magnetic fields. See, I do remember that. Yes, these magnetic fields are so unique in the context of what happens when it's applied to the human body. First of all, a lot of it is harmless, hence used in MRI, which is magnetic resonance imaging. But beyond that, if one applied electric current through a coil applied to the forehead, it generates magnetic fields that will travel through the skin and skull and directly impact the brain tissue. Okay, so I have a question. So far, we've talked about electricity, and now we're talking about magnetic fields. Just to be clear, this is different to passing current through the skull, correct? Oh, yes, 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 yes. Let me be very clear. Applying electric current is a standard practice in electroconvulsive therapy. It is an approved therapy, mind you, and was used since the 1930s by psychiatrists to treat epilepsy. One of the famous scientists who pioneered its use was an Italian, Ugo Serletti, who demonstrated that electric current applied through the skull could stop seizures. But what happened to these guys? You know, and the folks that invented ECT in Italy, electroconvulsive therapy in Italy, back in 37, they were kicked out of Italy by the 1940, 1941, right? Because of how heretical this was, because of the analysts, right? Holy crap. So really, the way things move forward using electricity and variants of energy is a bit like a renegade coup. And the manner in which these currents are applied to the skull means that large voltages are required because skull and skin are very good insulators. And this current usually doesn't travel well. So the best that it does is to reach the outermost cortical layer and it stuns the nerves. And much like shocking the heart, these currents can create a big jolt when applied and patients have been known to be fractured when it's applied to the, to the head. As a result, it is applied under general anesthesia now with muscle relaxants. But when it's done this way, it's absolutely safe. This kind of uh, tradition of this, right? And so now, you know, I and a lot of others feel like we're in this third era, of, early in this third era of psychiatry, the circuit era, right? But in the, it's not just neuromodulation. Neuromodulation is an obvious thing to do. Focal neuromodulation, in fact, an, an isolated circuit is an obvious thing to do if the problem is isolated to a given circuit or a couple of circuits in the case of schizophrenia, you know? Um, and, uh, and so, you know, why would you open up a, a, a bottle of, uh, of, of engine oil and pour it all over the engine instead of pouring it just into the, you know, the oil container? And that's what we've been doing. Now, you know, that's not to say psychopharmacology hasn't helped a lot, but it has all these what we call off-target problems, right? Yeah, just like the ones we outlined a couple of minutes ago. It makes sense that this would be era three and why people would transition away from meds. Yeah, you know, we covered in our last season in our psychedelics documentary series that a lot of understanding and mechanisms of how psychedelics really affect the brain came from deep brain stimulation studies. The psychologists who ran these imaging studies that showed how the psychedelics break down and reform 
all the connection and almost light up all the brain areas, took the inspiration from years of psychosurgery experience when neurosurgeons were trying to stimulate the subthalamic nuclei area and later on went to develop other brain stimulation techniques. And the cool thing about what we are going to discuss today also comes from deep brain stimulation as well. There are two parallel stories that we are going to track. One is happening south of the Smoky Mountains in Charleston, South Carolina, tracking the development of TMS, or transcranial magnetic stimulation. And another is happening up north, near Niagara Falls in Toronto, with collaboration from the neurologist who was key to defining depression as an electrical circuit problem. The key thing to remember is that depression, which is a topic that we are going to talk about today, is something that is pretty easy to understand. Just like many things in life, it is important to remember the history. Singulotomy was a procedure that was developed in 1948 as an alternative to lobotomy. Lobotomy, for all its Frankensteinian and social references, does not involve taking out parts of the brain, but it ensures that the circuits in the brain are disconnected, much like how a bomb diffuser in a SWAT team might do. Interestingly, you can call this as one of the first manifestations of psychosurgery as it was developed to treat depression and more importantly at the time, obsessive compulsive disorder. Yes, singulotomy is severing of the connections that the cingulate cortex shares with the limbic system. Cingulate cortex is located in the forehead region and the limbic system is part of the deeper brain regions that enable cognition, memory recalls and rumination. Okay, that makes sense. If we take the case of two individuals, one is cheerful and bouncy and sees a person they know being a bit angry or grumpy towards them, they will probably spend a second or two analyzing why they did not speak well to them, but they will move on. But if you have a person with depression, it can take a lot of rumination because the act of someone ignoring them triggers a deeper emotional response that makes them rekindle some of their unpleasant memories and they could get locked into those thoughts. As a result, over time, this neural circuit gets conditioned to think a certain way, and the world around them can seem gloomy at best. We discussed how psychedelics can help break this circuit down in the last season, but now let's look at another non-invasive modality. So Arun, before you go there, you said you were going to tell me something about DBS and the two parallel stories, the one in South Carolina and the other one in Toronto. Oh, yes. First, let's talk about one of the pioneers of magnetic stimulation of the brain, Dr. Mark George. Uh, my mentor, Mark George, um, and others, you know, um, Helen Mayberg, Holly Elizabeth, all these people that have kind of come before the current generation of folks that are, that are kind of in the, in the thick of things. Um, those guys really uh, had to fight a lot, of, uh, a lot of the problems that the psychopharmacologists had to fight in the early days of psychopharmacology, but from the psychopharmacologist and from the, the psychotherapist and the psychoanalyst kind of saying that none of this made any sense. Mark George was quite a renegade. As a physician and as someone who battled with depression himself, he was very driven by the use of non-invasive tools to treat people with depression. In fact, Mark was able to show in the 1980s that when he focused the magnetic stimulation to the areas of the motor cortex, he was able to induce a flexion of the thumb or numbing of the tongue on one side of the face. And all of this was an effort to demonstrate that he was able to focus the magnetic field to specific areas of the brain. But here comes the interesting part. There's this kind of 
really famous story where Mark George was sitting, um, you know, in he was at the NIH at the time, was sitting there with the NIH director um, talking, and the NIH director at the time pointed out um, his paper and said, "This is exactly what we should not be funding at NIH." Right. So that was really that's really the the frame um, was the frame back in the mid mid to late nineties uh, on this stuff. Really, up until about. You know, from my perspective, 2014, 2015, 2016, when I first started as faculty at Stanford, it was still not, you know, embraced. And now what we're seeing just in that short six, seven years is a, is this, you know, relatively quick transition where people are seeing this as real, seeing it as something that can, can truly be helpful to patients. Not everybody, but, but more, more people for sure. Um, and there's a definite sense that's palpable that um, that this is this is gonna you know is being seen as something that'll be more central to what psychiatry is instead of it being the super fringe thing. So really, the psychedelic story and transcranial magnetic stimulation have had some similar parallels and timelines. Yeah, <laughs> really interesting, isn't it? Ready to dig more? Absolutely. Yeah, let's take a short detour to visit Helen Mayberg, who was at Emory at the time, shall we? Dr. Mayberg is probably the most understated clinical neuroscience researcher that there is. Why do you say that? Uh, Trained as an imaging physician and researcher and a neuroscientist, she was very keen to understand why mental health disorders were impacting circuits in the brain. Remember, this was a significant move at the time from the serotonin hypothesis. Approaching mental health as a circuit dysfunction was pretty new at the time. But unlike many others... Helen Mayberg was super keen to perform studies in humans and found an ideal partner in Andres Lozano, a neurosurgeon from Toronto. Dr. Mayberg is said to have been skeptical in doing these studies in human clinical subjects with depression. But Dr. Lozano, through a series of collaborative studies with Dr. Mayberg, showed that there were areas in the brain that were activated and there were other areas that were inhibited. Most of these initial imaging studies guided them to put in a clinical trial protocol to test deep brain stimulation based on identifying focal area that was hypoactive in depression. Let's get back to the hypothesis here. So back in 2003, around the time that this study was done, through the work of Mark George and Helen Mayberg, it was thought that frontal cortex, almost the area behind the forehead, was not active enough. And the cingulate cortex, which is one level deeper, was hyperactive. The two areas then communicate to the deeper regions of what is referred to as the limbic system. The ruminations that the patients with depression experience is due to the strengthening of the connection driven by reduced activity in the left frontal cortex. And you will hear this term very often in in the next few minutes, which is left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and a hyperactive cingulate cortex. This type of circuit disturbance causes the patient with depression to go into rumination quite quickly than an otherwise healthy individual. Therefore, during the dark days of depressive episodes, everything can appear to be dark and gloomy with progressive circuit dysfunction and this can even lead to suicidal ideation. This ties very well to what Nolan was saying, that if you identified a specific area, why pour engine oil all over the entire engine? Why not just pour it into the oil tank? Yes, that's correct. So you can almost imagine that if you approach depression 
obsessive compulsive disorder or other mood disorders as a circuit problem, you could pinpoint energy to a single nodal intervention point. And that nodal intervention point, in the case of depression, is the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. Yes, but that's what we know now. But Jojo, that's not how the story started, though. Remember at the time, it was a black box. So let's rewind back to 2003-2004, when Helen Mayberg and Andres Lozano are having a discussion, and they decide that Andres can perform the surgery safely, so they work on a clinical protocol and enroll their first patient. So they got the approval to do the study, and the patient was called in. Surgical OR prepped, and an awake surgery, also called functional neurosurgery, began. The patient was a 48-year-old female who was diagnosed with major depressive disorder at 18 years of age. So she's lived with depression for three decades, and the last depressive episode lasted for 18 months, at which point she decided to volunteer for the trial. The magnetic resonance images and the anatomical landmarks were carefully marked out and the surgery began. Dr. Lozano pokes through the areas of the brain, identifies a specific region called Broadman's area number 25, which is in the cingulate cortex, and he identifies the area and instructs his fellow to start stimulating. The fellow looks at Helen Mayberg. Helen nods, and the fellow clips the stimulator wire to the lead that Andros Lozano had just implanted. He looks up at Helen, and Helen is controlling the stimulator with one hand, with her eyes dotting back and forth between the stimulator and the patient. With a racy heartbeat, not knowing what they will see, she sets the norms. She goes back to the conversation that they had before surgery within the team. They had decided that they will use frequency that they tested previously for Parkinson's and starts with 130 hertz and a current pulse width to be 60 microseconds. So each pulse is 60 microseconds, delivered 7,800 times to this area of the brain in a minute, all while the patient is awake and being talked to by Helen Mayberg, the neurologist. Hold on, wait a second though, because you just threw out a bunch of terminology with this expectation that I know what you're talking about. And I'm going to slow it down for a second because there are other people like me out there. What is 130 hertz and 60 microseconds? Okay, Arun, give me an example too, because I want to understand. It feels like this is complicated, so some down-to-earth examples will really help me understand. Yeah, we can do that. Can we start with a simple example like a metronome? I'm not skilled at music, but I do have a child who learns music, so I listen to metronomes all the time. Metronome is used to set the tempo, right? Okay, I got that. So metronome, as I said, sets the tempo. So the metronome clicks once a second, like this. It is one hertz or one cycle per second. So now let's change to two hertz. To 10 hertz. To 30 hertz. To 100 hertz. In each of those upsteps in frequency that you heard, the metronome was cycling once a second to twice a second to 10 times a second, so on and so forth. The nerves in the body communicate with such clicks. 
So you can almost simplistically say that every time a nerve communicates, it creates an electrical impulse, much like a metronome click. Okay, I see where you're going with this. The stimulator that Helen Mayberg was operating had the capability of modifying how quickly the nerve can be stimulated, how much each pulse should be, and for how long it should be delivered, which I do not believe is a switch that one can just simply flick off and on. So the hammer looking for a nail, devices like the deep brain stimulation that's in vogue, which are open loop and evolved from pacemaker-like devices, stimulate continuously, right? That's correct, yes. And can we go to Helen Mayberg now? Sure, what'd she do? As it is typical practice, she sets the frequency to 130 hertz and the pulse width, which is the width of each pulse, to 60 microseconds as they used in Parkinson's treatment in a different region of the brain. And the voltage is increased slowly. That's the plan. Okay, this is not a true crime podcast, but I am on the edge of my seat. This is a fishing expedition. Tell me more, Arun. They go up from 2 volts to 3 volts to 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. When they hit 9 volts, the patient stopped talking and seemed to have fixated on a thought. Wait, though, what, what happened? A worried Helen Mayberg asks the patient if she's okay. And the patient replies, Yes, I feel calm. Okay, I'm confused. The patient had her skull open and electrodes on her brain that are passing current. And she said she was calm. Now I'm super confused. Well, you're not alone, Jojo. Dr. Mayberg was also confused. She, as the neurologist, was comforting the patient through the procedure and assumed that the patient was trying to tell her in return that she is okay. Silence ensues for a few seconds. Helen asks again, How are you feeling? The patient makes eye contact and just looks at her. Yeah, Helen Mayberg gets really concerned. She pauses for a second and asks, what do you mean? The patient, in a very plain voice, repeats the answer. I feel calm. She stares at Andres Lozano, the surgeon. They stare at the monitor and see that all the vitals are normal. Dr. Mayberg composes herself and asks her to describe how she's feeling. She just glances at Helen and starts talking. How can I explain calm? I feel peace. On probing further, the patient actually said that the room appeared a bit brighter than what it was before. And everything around me looks a bit more sharper. And the colors, they seem vibrant, she said. And here's the part where you tell me that the anesthetist gave her too much gas and air, right? Jojo, stop it. Dr. Lozano, the surgeon, then asks her to perform motor tasks and the tasks appeared more faster with stimulation than without. They repeated it a few times to ensure that it wasn't just a pure damn luck. And they observed that the speech was more spontaneous than before. 
Such findings were seen in five other patients and all of them received an implantable stimulator and were successfully treated for depression. Hope you're finding the information in this episode as exciting as what we did. I want to give a shout out again to our sponsors, Cortec Neuro and Certec Medical. Just one more thing. Can I also thank our friends, Giovanni Loricella and Dwayne Mancini at MedTech Money and Project MedTech Podcasts. Their podcast was designed for MedTech entrepreneurs who are fundraising. Catch up on their episodes as they demystify fundraising and investing capital for MedTech startups. Now, let's get back to our story. So what you're telling me in this happily ever after story is that unlike pharmaceutical therapy, direct electrical stimulation of the cingulate cortex led to immediate improvements in the symptoms. And though the cingulate cortex has increased activity in patients with depression, stimulating this region had an effect that almost reset the circuitry, much like what a cardiac defibrillator does to the heart as we see in Grey's Anatomy or ER episodes for those older folks. Yes, yes, in the world of cardiac electrophysiology that I trained in, it is called overdrive pacing and is routinely used to break arrhythmias down on table in the cath lab by a cardiac electrophysiologist. While the mechanisms of how the stimulation of a brain region works in reducing depression is not known, it is assumed that it is somehow resets the connection up to the cortex, an area that we will talk about. Again, I'm going to repeat the area, which is left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, and down below to the deeper regions in the limbic system, like the amygdala. Amygdala, if you know, and if you remember, is the region that controls fear and emotion. So essentially, the rumination that comes in depression and the feeling of doom and gloom is a circuit with a superficial cortical layer being hypoactive, and one layer below, or subgenual cingulate cortex being hyperactive, this acts to tune the limbic system to the process of feeling depression and amplifies it. Why is this important? Because this is the fundamental fact that one should understand before we talk about the most recent magnetic stimulation for depression study, published by Stanford and now taken up by Magnus Medical. Let's hear it from Brett Weingeier, CEO of Magnus Medical. A couple thoughts first about the physiology. So the, the reason any of this works is because, um, sure, everybody's brain is different, but there, there are some commonalities. And in depression, the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is hypoactive. It's not quite active enough. And there are these deeper structures. One of them is the subgenual cingulate. It's actually hyperactive and they're connected so that when you stimulate left DLPFC kind of over your left forehead, it, it, it fixes this imbalance in the network and it, it, it actually damps down the, the activity of the deeper parts of the network and that treats the symptoms of depression. So the way transcranial magnetic stimulation works is, well, you have to be able to deliver pulses to this part of the brain. Obviously, ideally, you want to do that non-invasively. So you take a, a magnetic coil, it's shaped like a figure eight, and you very quickly, you, you put a, a, a large current through that coil. When you put a current through a coil, it makes a magnetic field. And that magnetic field, um, it, because, it's, because you turn it on and off so fast, 
it actually induces electrical activity in the part of brain and the part of cortex that's right under that coil. So that makes neurons fire. And when you make them fire in a certain excitatory pattern, which has uh, kind of evolved over the years, then it increases activity in left DLPFC and decreases activity in these, in these deeper networks. That is super cool. But how about ECT? ECT is an approved treatment and is used in the U.S. and in Europe by many psychiatry hospitals, isn't it? Yes, therein lies the interesting conundrum, Jojo. We need to understand market penetration, and this is what determines therapy success, reach, and outcomes. Let's hear from Nolan Williams, assistant professor and lead clinical author of this trial. Yeah, so so what you have to understand about that is that it was not approved by modern standards. It was approved in the way that we that we approved devices back in the mid-70s. It was grandfathered in. That's not to say it's not effective, it's not safe, but it was grandfathered in. And you know, and now there's this view that you can't do randomized controlled trials with electroconvulsive therapy because it's not ethical. Which I think is true. But it, gets, it creates this problem of there's not good data and there probably won't ever be good data for doing electroconvulsive therapy in the standard way where you have like a sham control and all of that, right? And so you got that one problem. You get this other problem where, you know, there are certain kind of subpopulations. I won't get into names, but there are certain kind of subpopulations in the world who groups and things like that who have like a pretty serious kind of ethical concern around ECT. And, and there are some real cognitive issues with some people who get ECT. Now, there are various people like Carol Sackheim and others who've worked very hard to try to you know, lessen and lessen the, the cognitive burden um, of ECT. And, and where it was and where it is now is much different. But, but for some people, even with the most um, low-risk versions of ECT, they do get autobiographical memory loss. And if they need maintenance ECT, they kind of maintain this autobiographical memory loss. So this issue of not being able to remember in and around the time they're getting ECT, which just kind of, kind of, kind of shuts that memory consolidation period down, you know. And, and there are these, you know, much more rare issues where every once in a while somebody will not stop seizing, they go to the ICU, or they have a heart thing, or whatever, or they don't get enough paralytic, and then they break a bone. So I mean, there's there's all this stuff, right? And so as, as a generality, electroconvulsive therapy is quite safe, and for the vast majority of people, um, you know, effective. It's, um, you know, not as, it's not as effective in these treatment-resistant people as it is in other kind of, kind of other types of depression. So, like, psychotic depression, like, 95% of treatment-naive psychotic depression. So, people who have, like, a thought, a thought problem and a mood problem, you know, almost all those people get better from ECT. About half of the people treatment-resistant depression get better with ECT. Um, you know, it doesn't scale. If you've looked at it over the, next, over the last 30 years, there's not really a scaling, so it's a pretty flat line. And so you end up in a situation where, you know, there's only about 10% of U.S. psychiatric hospitals who have it, and then only about one-seventh of the people in those hospitals elect to do it. So that ends up being 1.5% of the total. And so it's not really, as a, you know, general um, intervention that would treat most people, it doesn't fit the bill for that, you know. Um, People have tried to make that so. Um, but it doesn't fit the bill for that. And that's really where the clinical motivation for SYNC came from. It's this, it's this motivation that we don't have emergency treatments for psychiatry. We don't have a treatment 
specifically built to treat people in very short periods of time, very efficaciously in emergency settings. ECT can treat people in those emergency settings if they elect to do it. They happen to be one tenth of the U.S. psych hospitals that have it. But it takes about 30 days, you know, to treat somebody. So it's not that fast, you know. So we, we were really focused on that. So how do we compress this down in this case into five days and then maybe for some people maintenance treatment? And, and that's really a motivator. The big mo- the clinical motivator for that is that some people don't realize this, but the period of time right after somebody gets admitted to the psych hospital is the highest period of time for a suicide attempt, suicide completion. So if you go to the hospital for de- suicidal depression, and then you get discharged, your chance of trying to commit or actually committing suicide in that 30 to 90 days after is the highest you'll ever have in your whole life. And, and on the face of it, you're like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Why would, if they just went into the hospital, why would that be? And what you find is the reason why is because they go in and there's nothing for them. If, if, if they're lucky, they have symptomatic improvement. What happens in many, because there's not really treatments that work in the time frames, right? So what happens is they get into these friend groups of people in the psych hospital and they say, listen, do you want to leave? Yes. Okay. If you want to leave, you got to stop telling them that you're thinking about jumping off of that bridge. Right. And not everybody, but a, a subpopulation of psychiatric patients, that's the way it goes down. Right. And then they, over time being there, they're ready to leave because they don't think it's helping them. And maybe their neighbor has schizophrenia and they're psychotic and they think that they're Jesus Christ. It's freaking them out or whatever it is. You know, their family's there, you know, their family's having a reaction. They themselves are having a reaction. How am I in this place and I'm not getting any better? And then they eventually figure out what to say and then they get out. Or maybe they transiently feel better because they're going to groups or something like that. But then as soon as they leave, they then go and have this this suicide uh, attempt or suicide completion. But with the advent of psychedelics, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy is an option. So we asked Nolan how this impacts patient care. What Nolan described did not come as a surprise as ketamine effects are not long-lasting. Yet despite this, there are many legal ketamine-assisted psychotherapy clinics in vogue in the U.S. They are doing extremely well and are profitable. And so, you know, ketamine is is an option for that, right? You know, ketamine can treat people really fast. The problem with ketamine is it doesn't last. And so if they don't go and keep... It's not, on average, one infusion doesn't last uh, more than seven to ten days on average. So I call it a depression holiday. And, and, and actually, there are not very many places that actually give ketamine in an emergency setting because everybody kind of knows this. And the problem with that is you get somebody well enough, they leave, and then it, it goes away, and then they're in a high-risk zone unless they are getting more ketamine, which is hard to do. It's not paid for. And so, you know, you get into the situation where, what do you do? Well, a rapid TMS approach that lasts a lot longer than ketamine. Now that makes a lot of sense, right? That you, then you can have this thing that, that sticks around. They don't, they don't necessarily have to do anything at least for a while after they get out and you get past that risk period. And what people will tell me is they'll say, you know, you know, I was very hopeless and I wanted to kill myself because I didn't think I had the capacity to get better. And the TMS, this TMS, the saint that you, that you gave me, uh, showed me that I can get better, you know, that I can, that I can resolve this problem. Um, and that's pretty powerful. You know, that's pretty powerful to know that you've got a device that can get you out of this thing, you know? Okay. The TMS that Nolan is referring to is transcranial magnetic stimulation and what has been developed at Stanford by Nolan and now licensed for commercial use by Magnus Medical is a bespoke form of TMS. The first question we had was, 
what exactly does this TMS technology do? And why is it so different from existing regulatory approved device stimulation procedures? The reason why this is important is because the brain and the regions in the brain do not fire continuously. They have specific patterns that they fire at. Exactly right. We spoke of this in our first episode of the season. But the nerves in our body do not communicate in continuous string. It's an orchestra. Every part of the brain communicates differently, much like the string players or a piano player. They play their part and let the others rise and shine when they need to. But the orchestral piece sounds best only when they are in tune. Like for examples, the region in the brain will communicate in a specific manner. A 5 hertz burst like this. That is repeated regularly like this. So if the brain cells communicate in this burst pattern, wouldn't it make sense to modulate the brain regions that are hypoactive with that particular pattern? Well, yeah, it should, shouldn't it? Yep, that's exactly what Nolan Williams at Stanford did. So it, it doesn't emulate the actual DBS settings, it emulates the thinking, right? The DBS settings are actually way different than what we use, but it emulates this thinking that it's target-specific and that whole thing. The, um, the theta burst stimulation pattern has been around for a while, but it was being given as an, you know, first as like an isolated three minutes, you know? We're giving like a, comparatively a lot of stimulation in a very well-defined patterned way. Um, but, we, you know, for this, three minutes, and that's it. You change cortical excitability. And there's a number of, um, of studies that have demonstrated, you know, kind of leading into what we're doing, that if you give um, 1,800 pulses, that'll have an, have an effect on uh, depression in a sham-controlled way, but just once a day. And then the, the 50 hertz itself is a, uh, is a mimicking of the hippocampus, right? So it's this what, what people call phase amplitude coupling. So it's this local thing and then this, um, this kind of brain-wide thing, right? So it's like AM and FM radio. So what is the problem with AM radio? As you know, it's, it can't play like great music quality there, but you go very far. FM radio, it's much more local but you can have much better kind of information discerning. And so the brain operates in that same thing, but it uses this combination of FM and AM radio. The FM is the what we call the burst or the high frequency part. It's 50 Hertz triplets. Uh, and people explain to these numbers a little bit, but the, the most standard one is 50 Hertz triplets. So you have three pulses at 50 Hertz every fifth of a second. So the first pattern, the kind of highest, frequency pattern in what is five pattern, you know, actually five, five nested patterns, right? And which is what the SAINT protocol is, what the unique aspect of this is and how we were able to get a patent on this. The first pattern is, is this 50 Hertz bit. The second pattern is the five Hertz and, and specifically doing it, the 50 Hertz every, um, for three pulses, every fifth of a second in the, in the case of intermittent theta versus it's classically done for two seconds. You know, so that gets in about 30 pulses or about 10 triplets over that period of time. And then for intermittent or the excitatory form, you have then an eight second inner train interval. 
And that's yet another pattern, right? And so the, you've got the first pattern is 50 hertz. You got the second pattern is five hertz. You got the third pattern that is this inner train interval. We have eight seconds off where nothing happens. And then it starts over again. And so no one really knew. So then that's a session, right? Then you define a number of pulses and a number of essentially trains. And the trains, you know, the number of trains reflects the number of pulses or vice versa because it's constrained to these parameters, you know? And so in our case, we used 1,800 pulses, which constrains it to 60 trains or nine minutes of stimulation. There's a lot of data to support that. I could get into all that. But it basically, you know, increases cortical excitability the most. It, it had data for depression back in 2004, 2005 when we're looking at this. But then the big question was the what we call intercession interval, which is the fourth pattern. He has taken the burst pattern and re-simulated the magnetic energy from his coils to be delivered in the same manner. And now he has gone one step further by arguing first and then showing that compression of energy into a short space of time leads to clinical improvement. Hold on, though. He explains in a way much better than what I can do, Jojo. Something that most of our listeners will have a past experience with when they are learning something. The fourth pattern is, well, now I've stimulated. How long do I wait to stimulate again? And that's the space learning theory part, right? And that's the part around there's got to be an ideal interaction and it gets into learning. And so people have done these experiments in, in mice where they get a hippocampus slice, they stimulate with, theta, with intermittent theta bursts, and then they wait a certain period of time and then they stimulate again. And what they found is that you need about an hour. You know, 50 minutes is the shortest, an hour and a half is about the longest, two hours, what people looked at. And you need about an hour before you get protein synthesis and you get kind of cellular learning, right? And that, um, and that hour is reflected in, in psychological experiments of space learning, this kind of note card thing I was talking about earlier, where people don't make one note card and look at it over and over again. In, in stimulation terms, that would be called in-mass stimulation. It doesn't work. You can't learn better by looking at the same note card over and over you know, 50 times and then setting it down. That never works. And so we know intuitively when we write out note cards, we write out 60 of them. We look at one about a minute each. And we get back to it in about an hour. And that's how everybody uses note cards to study. And that's actually the way to do it. That's the way to stimulate. That's the way to learn. And what we're what we're teaching, essentially, that the the machine is exogenously teaching, and the brain is learning a very simple lesson. And that lesson is stay on and remember to stay on. And that's the information that we're sending in. And so you need to do that, just like you need to see the note card fifty times in order to remember all of them. You need to do that enough times to be able to remember. And that's the dose part. Right, and that's why you need that that bigger dose. You need that what we call bolus, where we're giving six week courses every day. We're giving seven and a half months worth of TMS in five days, and basically it's like cramming for a test. You're giving all this information, you know, over this period of time, and you're trying to cement that information in by showing it to them over and over again. And that and 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 so the fourth pattern is the intercession interval, and that's fifty minutes. And then the fifth pattern is people stop at the tenth after the tenth session, they go to sleep, and then they come back in and start over again at the first session. And so there's this yet another pattern, which is this pattern that's in between days, kind of interday interval, if you will. 
and that's you know whatever it is it's about 14 hours or so right it's the 14 remaining hours after the people have been there for for, for, for 10 hours doing our stuff and so you know all of that seems to be kind of critical to be able to pull this off that you need the these kind of five patterns interestingly we're interested in doing this in an invasive way too and we've looked into it I've talked to every invasive neuromodulation company in the business can you do this they don't no one so you can't actually put this pattern through a, a 2021 deep brain stimulator implantable pulse generator you can't now you, you can do a lot of firmware updates to do it but as it stands you can't do it um, and it's because the pattern is so complicated you got like five levels of temporal control, um, you know. So we're trying to figure out how to do that, how to get one of those, get get one of those built, get the firmware built out, or whatever. But if we can do that, right, then we can actually program in the whole, the whole thing, right? We can put in this entire temporal pattern. And the beauty of that is, you know, and I was telling you about this earlier. We had people who failed ECT and thirty meds and all that. We can get them well, but they don't stay well very long. They stay well for a couple of weeks and then they relapse out of it. But if you could implant and it could do direct electrical stimulation, the brain would feel the same way that induced current would feel. You know, in that theoretically, if you could do that, then you're talking about being able to, you know, emulate that and have something that can keep people well ongoing. And you've got the you've got the formula for that brain pacemaker for mood, right? And that's a lot of companies, a lot of people have tried to come up with that formula. You know, and if we can if we can do the engineering work to translate this onto an implanted device that's doing direct electrical, we think that we have that formula. So Nolan Williams ran a first clinical open-label study and published it in 2020. 20 patients took part in this open-label trial. Patients were all admitted into the hospital because they had a psychiatric emergency, and they would have been admitted to the hospital anyway. In a way, they are the sickest of the sickest patients. Ones who are on multiple medications, as much as 30 medications in some cases, and have tried electroconvulsive therapy, and get this, some patients even had a diagnosis of bipolar disorder associated with depression. Okay, hang on, Arun. Can I say just one thing? Because a spark just went off. While we did the Psychedelics documentary series, we did talk about psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy being given to depressed patient volunteers, but anyone with bipolar disorders is excluded from those trials, right? Yes, Jojo, that's absolutely correct. And you're very good at grasping these concepts. Aw, thanks. Nolan published this trial in the American Journal of Psychiatry in August 2020, and a stealth company was formed to take this forward. Here is Brett Weingeier, the CEO of this company, which is now out of stealth mode and called Magnus Medical. For every other disease or disorder you might come into the hospital with, you come, you get to the hospital and they say, welcome to the hospital. There's more we can do. Um, if you have a stroke, they, you, you come in and they have stents and catheters and, um, you know, interventional cardiologists and radiologists of all kinds and, uh, and TPA. And, and there's so much they can do. If you come into the hospital with a psychiatric emergency, there's uh, you you sit in the emergency room for maybe a couple of days. Um, your psychiatrist is, is standing there, kind of crammed into the corridor, trying to work with you on the worst day of your entire life. Um, hopefully, they find you a bed somewhere. They maybe tweak your medication a little bit. Uh, 
because th- there's nothing until now that's really been a a fast acting effective interventional treatment for psychiatric disease and the reason i the reason i started to answer your question with that is because the you know we're we're in the business here of trying to get neuromodulation technology into so many places where it can help so many people where it's it just hasn't been relevant so far so to, to, to do that and to do that to do that right, we need to be we need to be able to come to hospitals in particular with with an with an integrated system. So we will have we will have our we'll have a hardware system. Um, it'll be coupled with the the Magnus targeting algorithms and the dosing and so on, um, and it'll be that entire package that we come with. So Magnus is developing a system that is performing what they so far call a saint. Okay, so saint, you mean like a religious figure. What will a saint have to do here in this case, Jojo? Plenty. Maybe they teach mindfulness meditation, I don't know. You're asking an atheist. Jojo, you're going back into your cheeky rut now. We've been talking about magnetic stimulation of the brain. Yes, 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 I know the mezcal caught up with me. You're right. The world already has enough people talking of mindfulness and digital apps that do this and that and ohm and... We won't cover those in our podcast for sure. SAINT is an acronym for Stanford Accelerated Intelligent Neuromodulation Therapy. Ooh, you're right. I forgot most clinical trials and scientists like to acronymize their findings. Wait a minute. Acronymize. Is that even really a word? I'm making it a word. Well, it is now, Jojo, just because you said it. Uh, Our mission as a company is not just to restore mental health, but to restore and sustain mental health. Now... Uh, understanding exactly how we do that is is still something that we're learning about. Um, we can say from the data that we have that um, a lot of people who get saint, they you know we we haven't seen them relapse. Um, they in in the in the studies so far they've been followed out to six months if I recall correctly. Um, that there's a population who don't relapse or at some point you know depression is episodic. It's this interaction between a brain state and life events. And you know, maybe they relapse at some point, but it's, it's a new episode at that point. So really, what Magnus Medical is trying to do is to ignite the field of interventional psychiatry, much like interventional cardiology. Wouldn't it be cool? Much like when someone has a chest pain and they go to get anticoagulants and angioplasty and stents, etc., that folks who got admitted with depression get something that is that fast acting? The, the concept of what you'd call interventional psychiatry is is in its infancy and it's it's almost kind of in its infancy with this technology now um because psychiatrists especially inpatient psychiatrists um the 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 therapies that we have until now they you know they they just they take so long to work and it's you know such a it's this path of you know trying to put together a combination of of medication and therapy and support that that helps a patient get well kind of more in the long term. So it's a, it, it's a, it's a cultural shift to, you know, to, to, to make this more interventional. But at the end of the day, I, I think it's a cultural shift that, that will happen because, you know, now you know, everybody, everybody gets into this field because they, they want to help people. They want to help, um, help treat people in need. And now we have the technology to do that. Okay, but, Rune, yeah. I'm super interested in this now. 
It's amazing how a device system, more importantly, a bioelectronic device system, is helping patients with treatment-resistant depression. Yes, the 2020 open-label trial that Nolan ran and published before the company was formed is remarkable for the following reasons. It was a short-duration study where transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS, was applied for five days and reduction in depression scores were assessed. What was remarkable was the sharp reduction in depression scores that occurred from first day of stimulation. The, and the more recent study that was also published in American Journal of Psychiatry took an even more radical approach. It compressed what would be equivalent of 30 odd TMS sessions that psychiatrists would prescribe for a patient and compress it down to five days of intermittent theta burst stimulation. And the primary outcome was the mean reduction in depression scores at a month post-treatment. And this was a randomized control trial, a gold standard in assessing treatment outcomes. And it revealed some startling figures. The trial was actually stopped by FDA because it was decided that it was unethical to withhold TMS therapy, the way that Magnus Medical was doing, especially in the placebo group. Between TMS, psychedelics, and other therapies, we're building a pretty solid toolbox. A toolbox that holds so many new tools. Patients who previously had no choices except for pharmacological treatments could now have a plethora of new options. We can customize treatments according to disease profiles, personal histories, patient preferences, and more. Our amazing researchers are doing their jobs by finding solutions that have the potential to work for so many people. The regulators and payers need to catch up to ensure that these therapies and others in development are accessible to everyone who needs them. We want to leave you with the story of Deirdre. Deirdre had major depressive disorder for many years. She failed multiple drug therapies and was so despondent that her husband and her daughter advocated for her participation in the SAINT trial at Stanford. The therapy was over a period of five days, and each day was 10 to 12 hours long. Deirdre received two burst stimulations, and after the third stimulation, at the end of the third hour, the world around her began to appear brighter, and a weight seemed to have lifted off Deirdre's shoulders. She looked into her husband's eyes and asked, Is this how you feel too? You've been listening to Scraps by Electronic Medicines. We want to thank our donors, Certec Medical and Cortec Neuro, without whose help the production of these episodes would not be possible. Special thanks to Mr. Swaminathan Tirinyana Samandum, who performed part of the sound design and also performed the mixing and the mastering of the episode. The script was written and edited by Arun Sridhar and Jojo Platt. The transcript for this episode is available at our website, scrapspodcast.com. The interviews and the content of the episode are property of scraps and should be reproduced only with permission from Arun or Jojo. And if you liked our work, you can help us Bring more of such episodes by donating as little as $5 once or every month. And if you think about it, it is as small as buying a cup of coffee at Starbucks. Please visit scrapspodcast.com slash donate to do this.